Listener supported. WNYC Studios. I'm Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing. Think about how much waste you generate every day. The Advil bottle, the styrofoam tray for your chicken, the chicken bones, the toilet paper tissues and paper towels you consume. We're about to get dirty here, so think of the human waste, too. Now, multiply that by 8.5 million for all of New York City. That's 1.3 billion gallons of wastewater every day, 16 million pounds of trash, 8 million pounds of recyclables every day of every week. Today, you'll hear from two of the best people tackling all that waste after the break, New York City's first recycling czar, but first, Pam Alardo, a big name in sewage. Since last year, she's led New York City's Bureau of Wastewater Treatment. Mayor de Blasio poached her from Seattle, where she spearheaded an unprecedented upgrade of that city's wastewater treatment infrastructure. Why'd you leave Seattle to come here? <sighs> That's a great question. Do you ever look at your life as an older person and you and you kind of look at your life as a third party. Like, that wasn't me, but I'm observing it, right? right? And and You're there's a, a few things that are foreshadowing. Like, I, my both my brothers uh, at one time or another lived in Manhattan. And so I would visit New York frequently, you know, a couple, once or twice a year. Um, and I would come, I would land, I would have a great time. I'd be thinking about, holy cow, I can't imagine what it'd be like to work in New York City with just think about all the pipes under the street. It's crazy. And I would take a, a tour on the Hudson. I would see one of the treatment plants is on the Hudson up by Harlem. Be like, wow, that's a treatment plant. It's huge. Um, and then I would get on a plane and I would fly back to Seattle and I'd go, oh, my God, I don't have any problems here. This is easy. There, there's, there's no comparison. You know, in, in Seattle, I did great, and I, I plateaued at the top of my game in the wastewater world there. But you wanted the Kilimanjaro of wastewater treatment. Yeah. The, and uh, here you are. Yeah, the Kilimanjaro of wastewater. Mount Everest, maybe. Because, you know, Everest. I used to work in Nepal, so that's kind of where I got my appreciation for the value of wastewater. In, uh, a How peace, so? Peace Corps experience, actually. Um, children don't make it to their fifth birthdays or their twelfth birthdays often because of the the amount of disease that's out there, um, oh. and that's you know it makes me take my job seriously because we do save lives every day. People, right. you know, controlling sanitation, controlling disease that comes from sanitation that's not handled properly is what we do, and it's it's the fundamental reason why we enjoy the the quality of life we have. Fact in point, um, British Medical Journal did a study in 2007 about, they interviewed hundreds of doctors. What is the biggest medical breakthrough in the last 150 years? What came on top? Sanitation. It's responsible for extending lives. It's, it's the biggest reason why uh, really we have the kind of quality of healthcare throughout the world. And living in places where that didn't exist, right. um, talking to parents whose children died, because of dysentery or other diseases that come from lack of, of wastewater. You know, that's what makes me passionate about this stuff. My goal in life is that everyone should know what happens after they flush the toilet. Yes. Because it is a communal, social responsibility. Environmental. Environmental, public health, and people don't want to think about it. Right. They want it to go away and be gone. And we have the luxury in this country for it to be taken for granted. And it's because we do such a great job at right. it. So by and large, are the systems 
generally in principle in terms of science and so forth and engineering, are they the same in all major cities? Where, where What happens to water that goes down a sink, down a shower, a bathtub, a toilet, it all is it pretty it, much is managed the same way? There's there's a variety of technologies. I mean, it, there What's are... What's a good one? Uh, let me just talk about what happens from the beginning to the end. Sure. That might be interesting. No, and interesting. That, so yeah. let's say you use your toilet. Uh, it goes um, down out of your house and then into a local collection line. So there might be one down your street. And that'll dump into a larger collection system, which is a larger pipe. Usually it's called an interceptor. And that eventually will take it to a wastewater treatment plant. And in New York City, for example, we have 14 wastewater treatment plants. We have 96 pumping stations. So the pumping network. stations continue to force the material and the liquid and everything, whatever's down there, down toward the filtration. Towards the treatment plant. So we, at the treatment plant. Treatment. Moving water is expensive, and going by gravity is always cheaper. So where there's a hill, we take advantage of the hill, but at some lower points, we always have to elevate it and get it back to gravity so we can flow it to the treatment plants. Um, Very expensive, the the pumping system. So when it gets to the treatment plant, the first step there is a screen. There are bar screens. They're about half to three-quarter inch um, spacing, and they collect trash, things that people should not be flushing on the toilet, like wipes, baby wipes, facial wipes, dental floss, all that stuff gets caught. It gets stuck. gets stuck. And if it weren't trapped there, it's actually on the way it messes up a lot of the pumping systems because we have so much of this this material. Um, so we, we take it out there. We spend about $7 million a year just, for, just in landfilling yeah. the trash that people flush. And then it goes to... Um, some kind of grit removal to move, remove like sand and chunks of rock and then to a primary sedimentation basin that allow solids, inorganic solids for the most part, that are suspended to settle onto the bottom. And it also has skimmers on the top that takes grease off the top, mm-hmm. right? So that goes to a solid treatment system. And then the next step, and this is um, the fascinating world of biology, the next step we use a community of bacteria that actually digest the suspended organic material and clean the water via that method. You're bringing things in that will consume it as food. Right. And from there, it goes to another settling tank where we settle out the biomass that just consumed all this this organic matter. Um, But the water that comes out of the final settling tank gets a disinfection, basically household bleach to take any particular uh, pathogens out. And that gets uh, either discharged to receiving waters, or in some cases, in some cities, they're able to polish it a little bit more, use it for irrigation purposes especially in the arid southwest. And you said what happens to it here? What happens to here, it gets discharged deeply into the the surrounding water bodies after um, getting cleaned up. Um, You might have noticed, and I'm taking credit for this, and all the people who work in the Bureau of Wastewater Treatment can, 1,800 people, um, we take credit for the whales coming back. Because right. because of the work that they do 24-7 and the experience and skill, um, those whales have been able to come back into that our That water that's discharged deep into the neighboring waters, it's, it's that clean? Very clean. And what about the solids? Okay. What, human waste yeah. solids, where does that solids. go? So the solids are basically the bacteria that settled out, as well as the solids we collected in the, in the primary basins. And that uh, gets um, thickened, um, and then it goes to a anaerobic treatment process. So if, you, if you're in Brooklyn and you see those big egg-shaped yeah. metal eggs, right. um, those are actually digesters. And those are heated to 98 degrees. And within that, we're using an anaerobic bacteria. So bacteria that live without oxygen, and they'll digest those solids even more. And then that is a valuable fertilizer product. So it's a very you, valuable you, you, product. So who sells it? It's called biosolids. Um, <laughs> 
No. We're in New York's biocide. Yes. I'm, I'm, so, I'm, I'm thinking of like a conveyor belt, like a giant brownie is coming yeah, up there. Where does it go? Every day, about 1,400 uh, wet tons we create of biosolids. Now, it's not only great because it's a great resource we don't want to waste, but it returns carbon to the soil. And you actually can run a wastewater treatment plant at carbon neutral because of all the carbon benefit we have, the sequestration benefit from that biosolids product. Now, another thing I, I think that occurs to me is that there's auto mechanics and there's places where, where work is being done and chemicals of every fashion are being used to clean parts and cleaning solvents and motor oil, just to pick one industry. Uh, I'm not even talking about, you know, PCBs up the Hudson from GE in the 50s, that kind of thing, going into the Hudson River. I'm talking about right here in New York, in restaurants, every time somebody washes their hair, every time somebody dyes their hair in a beauty salon, all this stuff is going down the drain. What's the process that removes all those chemicals? So some of those chemicals break down very easily. They're, they're biodegraded quickly within the plant. They respond to the biological conditions within the wastewater plant, and you won't find traces of it in the effluent. Some of them break down into different types of chemicals, pharmaceuticals, right? right? You'll get, you know, people have chemotherapy. You know, that waste from their bodies might even end up in, in the, in the right. treatment plant system. And, you know, you're not And gonna, you can't get all that. No. And so there are uh, microcontaminants. So there is some studies about potentially um, ecological impacts from some of those micropollutants. We don't see that in the scale of New York City. The water bodies here are well flushing. If a wastewater utility is discharging to a small lake, for example, um, you're going to have much stricter standards uh, on that end. Um, you know, it's it's interesting. I'm a, I'm a strong environmentalist. I have been my entire life since third grade, as a matter of fact. And I, I care about trying to do the best we can by nature and get us back to nature the best we can. We live in a world that's got plastics and papers and, no. and, and also so many things. Um, we're, really, we're really doing an, a fantastic job and eliminating the, the risk to the environment and to health. And as monitoring and chemistry gets better, we can get down to lower and lower concentrations, and we're going to learn a lot more about ways that we can make it better. Today, we're, we're just miles ahead of where we've been. And when Is it I, safe to say that it's been about environmentalism for you? Yeah, and, and environmental... It's environmental work. I became an environmentalist in third grade, and I, I, I'm still an environmentalist. It kills me now that some environmental groups think I'm a polluter. I'm a very practical environmentalist. We've, we're spending public money. We've got to be good to the dollar and make sure that we're doing it the most effective way. Um, there's not an unlimited amount of money. What would you say, what's the Mercedes-Benz, oh, what's man. the Rolls-Royce of, for lack of a better way of putting of wastewater management around the world? Gosh, Who has an Mercedes. advantage over us? So let me, wastewater treatment, like many things, is an evolution, right? The, the Cadillac version depends on the situation you're in. Now, back when everybody were farmers and people did not live in concentrated cities, it didn't matter that people pooped in the field, use pit latrines maybe, no big deal. Um, as we started to get closer together, we started to evolve techniques for dealing with what human waste. What did the waste. Romans do? They, well, they had collection systems. Sure. And prior to um, the 1930s in New York City and prior to probably the 1950s and even the 1970s and the rest of the world, the whole driver towards wastewater treatment was to get it away from people. So you put a pipe in the ground and you got it to the nearest water body. And that was totally fine. But when the cities got bigger and people were more concentrated, we said, look, we got to start treating it. First treatment plants in New York City were Coney Island, Jamaica Bay, places where people were 
recreating at the beach, right? right? And that's what drove those early, early investments around the turn of the last century uh, and the very first treatment plants. And that was just primary treatment systems. After more and more people started, you know, using treatment or using wastewater and conglomerating in, in large groups, we this, the the federal EPA said in 1972, everyone's going to do the secondary treatment part, which is that biological system, and so that's now the standard for the United mm-hmm. States. Um, some places are treating to the to the extent where they can drink it directly, and that is Singapore. And they what they do is they do everything I just described add additional filtration, and then a reverse osmosis, uh, which is very, very fine filtration, to create drinkable water. The city has strict, difficult, a lot of difficulties, strict limitations on the water, amount of water that can come to their city, fresh water, so they create water. Yeah, but you started your education in 1979. Not a lot of women were doing this kind of work, were they? I think I was like the first, quote, wave of women in engineering, which the wave has never grown. I think it's kind of flat. Right. Um, you know, my my uh, high school advisor who was advising about college told me I can't be an engineer because that was a man's job. Flat out told me that. And my response was, I'm not going to listen to you. If he told that to 100 girls, there might be 80 of them who said, oh, okay, no. You right. know what I'm saying? And that, yeah. that, you know, that's too bad. You went to college where? I went to college, my undergraduate, uh, Northwestern University. Mm-hmm. Got a chemical engineering degree okay. back in 1983. Right. You're in the technology building, the engineering building. You can't find a woman's bathroom. You got to go to where the secretary sit. You know, it was... It was Different frustrating. World. You know, the forms all started out Mr. period, then blank. It wasn't like you get to choose. I'm like, come on, you could update this stuff. <laughs> They're like, oh, we don't want to waste paper. I don't care. Just, you know, oh so stuff like that. It A was wild. World. And some of the older professors were just, their minds were blown. But, you know, I, I just had the calling and I, what I did, uh, I think was imprinted in third grade, to be honest. What was it about it that intrigued you? Just the problem oh, solving? No, um, in third grade. I had a student teacher, you know, probably, I was probably eight, so this person was 20, 22, taught us about environmental science. Changed my life. That day forward. I said, I want to learn this. I want to know about it. I want to fight polluters. I want to make the world a clean, healthy place. That commercial with the people throwing trash on the ground and there's a Native American person standing here. I mean, that was what I was all about. But that's the difference in New York to me now. I mean, I got my first home here in 1979. And in the years that I've lived in New York, New York is a lot dirtier. And New Yorkers are a lot dirtier. How does New York strike you when you got here and you saw the amount of stuff going into those screens compared to Seattle? Um, I've noticed things like there's a trash can sitting on the corner. Somebody walks by, throws their plastic bottle on the street. Yeah. I, I, I don't get that. I do notice, too. I have a dog. I pick up my dog poop. I put it in a plastic yeah. bag. A lot of people don't do that. Right. I want to do a video for you. You should. I want to do a video for the Department of Sanitation Wastewater Management. Alec wants you to know. When you flush the toilet, let's keep the diapers. Condoms. If you read in the condoms. (laughs) Let's let's be an equal opportunity finger pointer here. It's the tampons and the condoms and the baby wipes. wipes. And they don't break down. Poop, pee, puke, toilet paper. Four P's. That's all we want to see. That's it. That would be fantastic. Hi, I'm Alec Baldwin here with the four, reminding you of the four P's, poop, pee, puke, and paper. I think the more people know what happens after they flush, the more people are going to respect what they put down their toilet, and the more, the less they're going to want to litter. And that's why I really appreciate talking with you, and I'm so glad you have this interest. 
It's just over-the-top interesting. You're taking poo water and making it clean. New York City's Deputy Commissioner for Wastewater Management, Pam Alardo, a woman so passionate about her job that we had to interrupt the interview. I'm hitting the table. Don't mash your hands on the table. I think it even says here Don't. that you are from an Italian Catholic factory town. Are you an Italian Catholic? <laughs> yes, absolutely. All right, well, then stop pounding on the table. Yeah, I can't help it, And the it, way man. that Italian Catholics I do. I can't help it. Waste management, with all its implications for our health and the health of the planet, is still about politics like everything else. We can't fix the problem if we don't elect leaders who devote the resources and enforce the rules. And nobody, nobody was better at gaming that system and getting us to vote his way than Ed Rollins, Ronald Reagan's brilliant and controversial campaign manager. When Democrats go out and say, I want you to turn out your churches, your bus drivers, all the rest of it, we go out and say, here's the payday you would normally get. Just, you know, don't turn your vote out. Right. I know the game. I know how to make it work. And part of the reason I know the game is I was trained as a Democrat. More from Ed Rollins at heresthething.org. After the break, New York City's original recycling czar, former Deputy Commissioner for Sustainability and Recycling, Ron Gonan. I'm Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing. Ron Gonan is a capitalist even a hippie could love. In 2004, he founded a recycling startup that grew to be worth hundreds of millions of dollars. Now he runs a group of investment funds dedicated to new ideas in recycling. In between those two jobs, he was hand-picked by Mayor Bloomberg to be the city's first recycling czar. But when he walked into the studio, he didn't look like someone who could have had all that on his resume. You're so young. I mean, how old were you? 10 years old when you worked for the Bloomberg administration? <laughs> I joined the administration when I was 37. I'm, I'm about to turn 43. Okay. But Gonan got a very early start. As a kid, he cleaned houses and babysat to help his mom out with the bills. One day, he ended up in the house of one of the pioneers of the sustainability movement, architect Paul Macht. I met Paul Macht when I was in seventh grade, right. probably the most important thing that happened to me in my yeah, life. Tell me about that. Sure. It interesting. So, uh, I grew up with a single mom, lower middle class neighborhood in Philly. Uh, got a sports scholarship, financial aid opportunity to go to a great private school called Germantown Academy, uh, but needed to get a job because I needed to earn some yeah. money for my tuition and started working for Paul and his wife. Uh, this is the late 80s, early 90s, and I was doing everything from babysitting to housework. But right. he would talk to me about what he was doing over dinner. He gave me a book called Cradle to Cradle, the first book around circular economy. He would talk to me about these issues. I was really, uh, I was blessed to be around someone like that. So oftentimes people will come to me and say, how do you start these ventures? And I say, I I've been thinking about this stuff for 20, 25 years. And... The first recycling company was what? A friend from high school approached me with the concept of, could we pay people for recycling? And that's what ultimately became Recycle Bank. I ended up building the business model and developing the software for my first recycling company. I'm a recycling, I'm not going to say nut, but I take it very seriously. And even if recycling is just an exercise, people want to believe they can participate to make things better. I'm like, don't discourage it. But is it just an exercise or it's not as far as you're concerned? It's absolutely not just an exercise. Recycling has tremendous environmental 
value in terms of resource protection. It also has tremendous economic value to you as a taxpayer, and that's part of the message that oftentimes doesn't get out. So I appreciate that you have great spirit behind recycling. You should keep that, right. uh, but also feel good about the fact that you're doing something really important for the environment and something really important for your city. When, that, when those bags of recyclables hit the street, where do they go? All of the metal, plastic, and glass goes to a recycling facility in Brooklyn called Sims Metal Management. They actually have a phenomenal education program there, so I highly recommend folks to go uh, to see the Sims facility. And they also get 50% of the paper. The other 50% of the paper goes to Pratt Recycling out in Staten Island, and that paper then goes over to a mill right next door that Pratt owns and is turned into pizza boxes that then get resold right back into the New York City economy. The box that it comes in was your <laughs> New York Times? Could be. Was your New Yorker magazine uh, a, couple, could, a couple months ago? Could be. That's amazing. Could be. But let's, let's break it down to, to brass economics. If you threw that paper in the garbage, the city would be paying $100 a ton to export it to a landfill. If you put it in your recycling bin, the city will get paid a minimum of $10 a ton, so there's a $110 swing there. Then it will go over to a New York City business that employs people in New York City, turn it into a pizza box. What's the stuff the city collects and what don't they collect? What are some of the biggest misconceptions? So for recycling, the city collects dry paper and cardboard, aluminum and metal, all glass, and all rigid plastic. Like a, like a Fiji bottle. Exactly. So any plastic that's rigid goes into the city's recycling program. A, plas a plastic that's flexible, like a bag or plastic wrapping, does not. Oh, you mean so, so like, a, like, a, like a cup from Starbucks can go in there? A paper cup from Starbucks can go in there. There's not a plastic cup. Uh, no, a plastic cup can right. because a plastic cup has, right. has rigid. rigidity to right. it. Correct. So any formed plastic, like cups and so forth, they, the city will take that. Exactly. Well, why, and the city exempts those businesses from doing the recycling themselves. Well, Starbucks is not obligated to recycle. No, so, so the, the city currently collects all residential recycling. Right. So they collect from every home in the city. And not the businesses. Not the businesses. The businesses are responsible to contract for their own waste and recycling collection independently. Does Starbucks recycle? Uh, they, that's a so-so. Mm, right. So-so. They're not obligated to. They technically are obligated. What the city is working on is a better enforcement system to make sure that everyone actually is recycling. One of the challenges in New York City sometimes is you have so many businesses, the enforcement cost of checking on every business is very expensive. Uh, Starbucks could be doing a better job. Where are the recycling bins on the street? I don't see very I've seen some of them by Washington Square Park where yeah. I live. They're, they're in, especially in Manhattan, if you just look around, you'll see there are the metallic-looking uh, bins with a green top and a blue top. Mm -hmm. And the blue top is for your uh, metal, glass, and plastic, and the green top is for your paper. Talk to me about a timeline to your knowledge, about this movement over the last 50 years or 40 years, I mean, before you got started with Bloomberg, what was recycling? What was the dawn of recycling in this country? And is there somebody who's the mother or father of that, to your knowledge? Sure. It's, it's a great question. So up until the early 1900s, Americans didn't waste things because there wasn't that much packaging. Recycling really became necessary when a lot of packaging came along. Now, up until the 1930s and 40s, the New York City Department of Sanitation legally collected everything, including all of our bodily waste and whatever waste there was, and just dumped it in the East River. Right. At the Department of Sanitation, we literally have pictures of our trucks lined up on the East River, dumping, dumping, it, garbage <laughs> dumping garbage in there. Yeah. Um, 
then you started seeing more and more consumption come along and more and more packaging. Uh, with World War II, however, there was such a huge need for raw resources that America did an amazing job recycling up until and during As World War II. As part of a war effort. Yeah. Exactly. Don't waste. Exactly. Post-World War II, you actually saw a major divergence between what, was what Europe was doing, where uh, they were very poor in the 50s, 60s, and 70s. They were rebuilding their economies and countries, and they had very little land. So recycling was critical to their economy, to what you saw in America in the 50s and 60s and 70s, which is people moved out to the suburbs. There was no collection infrastructure. The concept of more, more, more as a status symbol became very important to people. And recycling took a back seat. And then you saw an emergence of it again in the 1980s and, and 90s and, and through today. Now, um, when you started with uh, Bloomberg, which was in 2012, I believe, mm -hmm. uh, he had been in office for how long by then? He had been in office? Nine years. He was there already there for quite a while. And give some insight into what made him want to hire a recycling czar. What did he see? Mm -hmm. And uh, what pressures you think were brought on him to uh, take this to another level? He had a deputy mayor named Cass Holloway, who, when he came in to be deputy mayor, looked around and said, New York City taxpayers spend $400 million a year exporting waste to out-of-state landfills. We have recycling companies in New York City that will pay the city for that material. What is going on here? I want to get someone in here who can fix this system. Turn it into a business. Exactly. And that's what I was brought in to do. Why do you think Bloomberg chose you? <laughs> Uh, people associate me with being very left progressive, but had some success as an entrepreneur. And the waste guys were comfortable with me, so I sort of fit everybody's, uh, everybody's criteria. And how did you start? Infrastructure and communication. So in infrastructure, we started rolling out containers all over the streets to make sure that there was infrastructure to collect material, but people would also see uh, recycling bins. We made sure that all rigid plastics could be accepted. So people didn't have to worry about, can I put this in, can I put that in? That was the first thing we did. The next thing we did was uh, start focusing on food waste and organics because food waste represents about 40% of what we landfill. And we started rolling out uh, a curbside organics program. There's about 250,000 homes in New York City today that get their food waste collected separately. The city will be citywide with the program within two years. And all New York City public schools now separate out their food waste. Is it safe to say, therefore, that you would discourage people from uh, using putting their compostables and their organics into the garbage disposal? That's not bad. That's actually much, much better than putting it in the garbage. Um, but there's something even better that we could be doing, which is collecting the food waste separately and turning it into clean natural gas locally, which the city started doing on their Bloomberg is now expanding. Describe how that happened. You take that, you collect that brown bin and it goes where? There's a process called anaerobic digestion. Right. Anaerobic digestion converts food waste into gas. It mimics what goes and on in the cow stomach. And you're doing that where? The, there's one anaerobic digester right now in the city, which is at the wastewater treatment facility out in Greenpoint. Right. All the, the food waste goes there and it gets put through the anaerobic digester. The gas is generated and right now it's pumped right into the grid. 10, 20 years from now, people are going to look back and scratch their head and say, let me get this straight. New York City was spending $200 million a year to pay to export food waste to out-of-state landfills. No, that, that can't be possible because what we do with it today is we use it to generate fuel for our city vehicles and gas for our homes. That's what they do? What, what were people thinking? Is that what they do? Yeah. Well, today it's, gener it's generating gas that's going into the grid. I'll give you a, uh, a forecast. 
10 years from now, New York City will be picking up food waste, driving it to the anaerobic digester, dumping it, going 10 feet away and refilling their gas tank from the gas that was generated from the food waste that they dropped off the day before. You you think it'll become a break-even proposition or better, or will you always be losing money on that proposition? Oh, you'll you'll always be making – the city will be making hundreds of millions of dollars off of it because right now the city is spending $200 million a year to export it to landfill. Just the food, just the the organics. Exactly. So if if you don't make – any money on the process, you don't make any money on the sale of the gas, you've saved yourself $200 million. Now, when you have um, 10,000 restaurants or whatever it is, you're always hearing different figures, 12,000, 15,000, I don't even know anymore. What do you need to do to get them to comply? How do you need, is it, is it a law you make? Well, I'm you, sure they're going to fight like hell against that, aren't they? <laughs> there's well, no law now that forced uh, restaurants, there's a law that uh, yeah. forced them so, to separate their organics? The, the Bloomberg administration passed legislation that the de Blasio administration is now continuing that uh, by certain years, all food service generators in New York City, by law, are banned from sending that food waste to landfill. This year, it came into practice with all large food service generators. That's the stadiums, that's the universities, that's the large kitchens. The great news is there are some restaurants in New York City uh, that recognize that they can run their business more efficiently if they can send their food waste to an anaerobic digester rather than paying to send it to landfill. And we had some great, great restaurant owners who were early adopters who said, hey, we want to do this. Pret-a-Manger, you will see a compost uh, bin right in every single store. How successful store. has it been? It's been successful. It's been successful. What do you think we're not doing that we should do? What's the next level for recycling? The great news about recycling is the money is there because we're already spending it sticking the stuff in, in a hole. So there's a lot of opportunity right for Right now New York sticks it in a hole where? The, Pennsylvania? The, uh, Pennsylvania, South Carolina, and Ohio. But there's a senator... Senator Casey in Pennsylvania, that he's trying desperately to get legislation passed to enable Pennsylvania to stop the importation of uh, garbage. He runs into you can't legislate against interstate commerce. But you know, New York City's got a big problem if other states say, we don't want your trucks, we don't want your garbage. Does the city have a plan for that? No. The only plan for that is recycle. Right. 80% of what's in the New York City waste stream can be recycled. Anybody who talks about Recycling doesn't work. We shouldn't be recycling. They're living in an alternate universe. But why are they saying that, you think? Obviously, there's a business interest involved. What business interests are they representing when they say that? There's a few interests. There's the landfill business interest, right? There's the interest of the companies that export this out of the city. Uh, And then you've got some political interests of folks that like to poo-poo anything to do with the environment. But they're all living in an alternate universe because if you don't recycle, where are you planning to put the stuff? How has de Blasio done in terms of upholding this process that uh, Bloomberg installed? Uh, He's done a good job. Uh, Most of the credit goes to the sanitation commissioner, Commissioner uh, Garcia. She was the chief operating officer of DEP under Bloomberg, and uh, de Blasio, to his credit, brought her over to become the sanitation commissioner, and she's done a fantastic job continuing the programs that were developed on the Bloomberg administration and implementing her own programs. Someone told me that... Dumpster divers, as people call them, people who are going into the waste stream and taking out recyclables for their own use to, 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 to claim the money, is hurting the city's program, correct? Correct. The city's relying on that stuff being available to them to monetize this whole thing. Correct. Uh, that's one of the curious 
uh, things about people saying that recycling doesn't work. Uh, in fact, the city sanitation department has 50 sanitation police scouring the city trying to stop people from well, stealing see, our recyclables. People, people are opening garbage bags in front of my apartment on those nights that that stuff's put out there, Monday night or whatever it is. Uh, one caveat to that is that it's actually not uh, waste pickers anymore or homeless people going around. Right. That's what it still appears to be, but in fact, it's organized. So if you were to follow those guys for a couple of blocks, you'll see that they end up at a very large truck. Yeah. With about They're 10, in a union. They got a union now. They're coming in from Jersey. They're coming in from Westchester. And uh, they fan people out. They go cut the bags, take the material, put it in their trucks, and they drive it out of the city and sell it. And that's a major problem for the city of New York for two reasons. One is that's revenue that's supposed to go to the city. Number You're one, relying on that. Yeah. Number two is it uh, in, impacts our ability to do reporting and understand how successful the program is. Uh, because the numbers end up going down, and then people will say, oh, see, recycling's not working in Park Slope or the Upper West Side. The numbers are low. And it's like, no, no, actually, it's working incredibly well. Someone's stealing all, all the, the products. know to go there. Now. Right. Now, do you believe if, they, if everything went—I went, mean, I mean, I know this is a fantasy, but let's play it out anyway. And that is that restaurants and delis, markets, Starbucks type of takeout places and everything where there's a big, big flow of recyclable hard plastics and so forth like that. Let's say they all participated in the program better and everybody was more conscientious and people recycled properly and we didn't have the bad commingling. And let's say everything got better. Could the city handle that flow? The city could absolutely handle that flow. Under the Bloomberg administration, a lot of money was invested in the infrastructure around recycling. All that being said, the most important thing today is what you're referring to, which is People need to get the message that when you throw paper, metal, glass, and plastic in the garbage, that costs the city money. Right. And I'm not interested in subsidizing your laziness. Right. You, you don't want to put it in the recycling bin, no problem. But you, you got you to pay the tab, number one. Number two is if you see somebody just throw something on the street, you got to say something. Uh, and and that's, that's a really critical part of actually making this better is there's a lot of more money that needs to be spent. There's... A lot of innovation that needs to come into place, but the messaging also needs to change, and the expectation of people needs to change. Give me an example of some city around the world where how they're handling their recyclables is commendable. Almost any German or Scandinavian city. Uh-huh. And what are they doing that we're not doing? Uh, everybody recycles. More participation. I, I was meeting with a, a, a government official in the Netherlands, and I said to him, how much do you find somebody when they put something in the recycling bin that shouldn't be put in there, they put something in the garbage that's recyclable? He said, we have no fines. I said, well, what do you do when they don't do it correctly? I said, well, why wouldn't they do it correctly? And that's how culturally different we are, is there, to your point, there's that expectation around civics that if you've been asked to do something for the betterment of your community and society, you do it. So if you look at communities in Scandinavia, they're doing a great job. In the United States, uh, Seattle, Portland, San Francisco doing a pretty good job. New York City and a lot of neighborhoods doing a great job, actually, and a lot of neighborhoods in New York City. Uh What's one thing we're doing? Just pick one for the time being. What's one thing we're doing here across the country that you'd love to see us stop first? Stop doing what? Allowing companies to manufacture products or packaging that is not recyclable. For example? Styrofoam. Good call. Part of the communication that needs to come uh, out around this is those styrofoam beads, they're terrible for the environment. You know what else are terrible for? 
you as a taxpayer. Why can't we outlaw that? Why? Well, New York City, we did that under the Bloomberg administration. The industry sued, uh, the city countersued, but the city has been trying for a really long time to ban styrofoam. My city's a got rid of plastic bags. Got rid of plastic bags. And my point of all this has always been it's absolutely bad for the environment, but we need to make sure that people clearly understand the economic argument. Let's take plastic bags for an example. New York City this year will spend $12 million of taxpayer money landfilling plastic bags. So if you're the plastic— and they can't be recycled. Can't be recycled. No technology to recycle. Only if they're absolutely clean and if pristine. Pres- you can't steam clean them. You can't put them through the it's hopper too expensive, and clean them. Too expensive. It's too expensive. But so the, the, the point that should be made to the plastic bag industry is, hey, we don't need to ban these. You can design, manufacture, sell whatever you want. But if it's not recyclable, we're not interested in picking up the cost of sending it to a landfill. And we also need to recognize some of the companies like a Patagonia and some of the other companies out there that have done a phenomenal job incorporating recycled material into their products and packaging cool. and make sure we reward and recognize them. Cool. So Closed Loop Partners, you're a fund that you're helping to manage. Are they looking for technology to invest in to kind of replace styrofoam? Are you looking for people that are going to make the next level of packaging? Uh, All all the time. We uh, scour the country and scour the world for innovative new materials, innovative technologies. We just invested in a company called Amp Robotics. It's the first artificial intelligence uh, and robotics company in the recycling uh, industry. We've uh, invested in a lot of super innovative technologies as well as just large uh, facilities to recycle material. So we're always looking for innovation and investments. Well, I want to wish you the best of luck with that because that's something that everybody's counting on. I mean, they really are. I just feel like so a lot of people are sitting home thinking, what can I do? What can I do? And we want to say to people, just recycle yes. aggressively. Don't give up. Keep keep doing that. Do it properly. Yes. And hopefully over the next few years, people like you and the funds you're working with will replace styrofoam. And it will t- and replace plastic bags with things that are fully biodegradable and quickly. Absolutely. And Absolutely. Uh, we, we'll get to a place where we can start to reverse some of this damage, which we are getting very close to the point where we might not be able to reverse that. So I'm, I'm, I'm hoping we will have you come on the show in a couple of years and you'll have some fresh and good news for us. That would be great. You want to get into business with me? <laughs> if you want to get into the recycling business, it would be great to have you. I'll leave it to the professionals, but I'm glad there are people like Ron and Pam Alardo in New York City making a difference one flush and bottle at a time. I'm Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing from WNYC Studios.